The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher at Creekside Bible Church, located in Cupertino, California. And what a privilege to sing to our Lord songs of worship. And that is something that pleases God from His children. We know that from Scripture. And now we have an opportunity to worship our Lord through attending to His Word. So I'd invite you, if you have a Bible might find that helpful, or one of your old-fashioned Bibles, or electronic Bibles, or might be one in the pew if you don't have one, or you just listen attentively. We're going to be in Revelation this morning as you're going there, Revelation 1 through 3. We do have Children's Church, and Pastor Elder J.R. will be the teacher of the day. So if you would like to be a part of Children's Church, fifth graders on down, you can head to the lobby, and you're going to study the Word together, and it'll be fun to circle back with you to see what did you learn with Pastor J.R. in Children's Church. The rest of us, we will be looking at Revelation 1 through 3 before we get there. Just a couple of announcements and updates. Uh, as you know, we have a writing ministry here, and just, again, wanted to highlight some of the most recent additions that have been helpful tools that have come out. I was going to have J.R.'s a uh, little booklet on hypocrisy, but looked on the shelf. They're all sold out, so we need to get more of those. Hypocrisy, good little book. And then uh, this one on hospitality that we did on a sermon that I preached on what the Bible says about hospitality. Hopefully some of you will find that helpful. And then the newest one just came out two weeks ago was a sermon that Derek had preached uh, on Solomon out of Ecclesiastes. We turned it into a little book. It's called Solomon's Great Commission, A Theology of Earthly Life. Very practical book and really helps inform your worldview as a Christian, uh, a worldview in terms of how do you live this life, what should your attitude be. Can Christians have fun? Well, that's controversial. Wait, let me ask that one again. Can Christians have fun and enjoy life? Well, wow, you're not supposed to answer? It was a... No, that's fine. Uh, I'd, I'd probably say yes is the answer in the book, but you got to read it yourself. And Ecclesiastes at times can be a, a challenging book as well, but a uh, good little read, very edifying. Thanks, for Derek, for writing that. And also, thanks to our team. We have several people, GBF members, who help with the editing process to help us produce these and make these available for you. First and foremost, we want to make them available for our church body for edification, as God has commanded us to do. And then if they go beyond that, that's wonderful as well. So, as always, you can find those in the lobby. For about five bucks, you just put it in a little container there. Or you can go to Amazon. And it's five bucks there as well, I think. About the best deal in town, as far as I know. Uh, with that, let's go to Revelation. As I promised, I thought it would be a good idea. We've been going through the book of Revelation, just the first three chapters. We have visitors today. It seems like we have visitors almost every Sunday, so maybe this church is new to you for whatever reason. Or maybe some of you haven't been here in a while. We always have folks like that. Some of you have been out on vacation for the summer. But just so you are aware that we are now Creekside Bible Church. This is officially, I think it's our 10th week as a church merge. Started Jan uh, July 1st, been going well. And as we bring these two bodies together, uh, we were strategically trying to think what's the best way to get all of us on the same page on the basics and fundamentals of a local church. And also with respect to our leadership in our church with the merge. So for 
eight weeks in a row, we had a Sunday school hour where each one of the elders gave their testimony and a little Q&A about, so that you could get to know who your elders are if you're a member of this church. It was a very blessed time. Got to learn a lot about our elders. Now we're back to the regular Sunday school hour. But another different thing that we did was take a break from our regular preaching routine and have our elders on a rotating basis, some of our elders, preach through Revelation chapter 1 through 3. There are seven churches, so seven, there's seven sermons. Then the introduction from Jesus was two sermons. And then today I'm going to give a summary of what we've been studying the first three chapters. And the reason I selected Revelation 1 through 3 is because in chapter 2 and 3, Jesus directly, the glorified risen Christ, unlike in the Gospels, when you see Jesus in the Gospels, He is not resurrected in glory. He is the humble, incarnate, non-glorified, suffering servant. But in Revelation 2 and 3, very different Jesus in terms of being in glory, in majesty, not the suffering servant, subject to no one. He is king, he is Lord, he is all authoritative, completely sovereign, totally in charge, and that's the message that clearly comes through as Jesus is talking in Revelation 2 and 3. If you have a red-letter Bible, all those letters are red because Jesus is giving all of the dialogue. He's talking directly to the churches, seven historical churches in Asia Minor, They're all in the same basic area. Every one of those churches was started by an apostle or an associate of an apostle through the ministry of John and the 12 apostles or Paul himself, and they're real historical churches. And they have seasoned over time because Jesus is now directly addressing these churches, could be somewhere in the 90s AD. Some of these churches are now 40 plus years old. Some are younger. And the Lord Jesus Christ is addressing every local church of those seven churches that he chose uh, by his sovereign discretion to give a message that he seemed, that he knew was fit for them to hear. And then also he had that written down by John the Apostle, inscripturated, preserved by the Holy Spirit, preserved for churches 2,000 years ago, but also preserved for us. 2,000 years later, we can look at exactly what Jesus said to these churches the word he was giving them, and there's a, a reason for that. And every one of these churches is different and unique. These are real churches, though. You look at some of these churches, wow, they're messed up. Some might conclude that they're not Christian or they're pagan. No, you can't use the word pagan when you're talking about the seven churches of Asia, Asia Minor because Jesus doesn't use that terminology. He calls them churches. And that's how every one of these seven churches started out, is a true, legitimate, gospel-founded church. And for the exception of the last one, we know that there were true believers in every single one of these churches. Even Laodicea had a root that still existed there that Christ could work with. So these are Christians, or at least Christian churches, of various demographics. And so I thought, let's listen to Jesus address each one of these churches week after week for seven weeks. And then from that glean some practical lessons. Not just today. Today I'm giving a summary, but hopefully as we've been doing it, this is lesson number 10 or sermon number 10 on Revelation 1 through 3. So hopefully as we've been going, and especially if you've been here just about every week, maybe some of you, this is actually the 10th sermon you're going to hear on Revelation 1 through 3. There's a lot to take in. And collectively as a church body, a local church, I wanted us to all be on the same page and glean together what are some of the most important and basic fundamental lessons that we can learn from Jesus' powerful living words 
as he addressed these seven churches, because we're a local church, just like these seven historical churches. We're not any different. Jesus is in charge. He's the owner. He's the senior pastor. It's his church. He would have words for us. He would have words of blessing for us, words of commendation. He'd also probably have words of condemnation or rebuke or warning. That's kind of scary. And that's what we want to be reminded of today. So I came up with lessons for the church from Jesus. I have six listed here. I'm not going to promise you I'm going to get through all six, but because they're just so rich, I could have come up with many more, but we'll just hit these that I thought were priorities and really patently obvious. If you're a Christian and you're discerning and you're depending upon the Holy Spirit, that these may have surfaced with you along the way. So let's go ahead and look at these. I've got six lessons that we can learn from Jesus about the local churches. And we'll just be uh, taking certain verses through the first three chapters as we go. And here's lesson number one that I wanted us to, to learn, and that's we need to heed or do what Jesus said in Revelation 1 through 3. We need to do what Jesus said in Revelation 1 through 3. Isn't that profound? We need to do... Heed, H-E-E-D, I believe that's the terminology of the New American Standard Bible. Where did I get this from? Well, this is based on the introduction. We, we saw this 10 weeks ago. Revelation chapter 1, verse by way of reminder, verse 3. John, the apostle, is writing this book, and he says, Blessed is he who reads. Blessed, blessed. Hey, here's a blessing. For, do you need a blessing? Man, I need a blessing. A blessing from God, not a superficial blessing, a shallow blessing, a supernatural, divine, guaranteed, you can count on it from God Almighty, Jesus Christ Himself kind of a blessing. There are conditions. Blessed is the one who reads. It's good to start by reading, taking it in. And those who hear, so you read it, and hearing means you, you understand it, you welcome it, you discern it. You agree with it, to hear. Hear is many times synonymous with agree or obey. So blessed is the one who reads the prophecy of this book and who hears the prophecy of this book, and then finally, who heeds the things which are written in the book. So those are the conditions. Got to read it, got to hear it and understand it, and then you got to actually do it. Then and only then do you get the blessing promised for reading the book of Revelation. And heed the things which are written in it, for the time is at hand. The time is near. So there's a blessing that comes with reading Revelation. I talked about this 10 weeks ago when I introduced the book. We're going to be reading Revelation for the next 9 to 10 weeks, studying it together. It starts out with a promise. This is one of the only books in the Bible that gives a promise to the reader up front. Hey, if you read this book, understand it, and do it, you will be blessed. You'll be blessed by God very specifically. But you've got to do it. So that's point number one. We need to heed what Jesus said in Revelation 1 through 3. The verb there, heed, in my New American Standard Bible, heed, the uh, ESV, NIV, other words are used in different English translations like observe, guard, all these are synonyms for do. We need to do what Jesus said in Revelation 1 through 3. Wait, you mean Jesus told us to do stuff in Revelation 1 through 3? Yeah, he did. There are imperatives and commands and obligations that Jesus keeps giving the church over and over and over again. You need to do this. You need to do this. Listen up. You need to do this. 
And some of those are negative. Don't do this. Don't do this. Don't do this. These are all these commands. Okay, so it's been 10 weeks. Question. It's kind of a challenging question. We're only going to be blessed if we actually do what is written in Revelation. Some of you have been listening week after week after week. Question for you, Christian, and for me. What have you done from the content of Revelation 1 through 3 in the last 10 weeks in your life, in your personal life? What have you implemented from what you've heard from all these sermons in Revelation up to this point? Just think for a second. Have you done anything that you can think of? No doubt some of you have. What have you done? Maybe some of you have been keep hearing and, well, you know what, now that I think about it, I can't really recall anything that I've actually done as a result of the Revelation sermons. Well, that's kind of dangerous. That takes us to the book of James, where James said, be a doer of the word, not merely a hearer only. That's dangerous. We are not just spectators as we're Christians. We don't come to get entertained by the preacher. Very dangerous. And compare the preachers. Oh, yeah, we've had four or five different teachers. That's kind of cool. Yeah, he's a nine, he's a seven, he's a ten, he's a... No. It's the Word of God. So we want to be blessed. We've been privileged to hear it as it's been preached. And Lord willing, we've been able to hear it as it's been explained in context. And if you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit in you to help you understand it. But then the onus is on us as individuals to actually do it. Which reminds me of all these commands that Jesus gives throughout these first three chapters where he says, that he says, repent, remember, do this, heed these words. Who are these commands first and foremost to? Who, who needs to repent? When Jesus says, repent, which he does several times, who needs to repent? Well, the first answer isn't the church collectively. That's not the best answer. Because some of these individuals in some of these churches didn't need to repent. Because he'll point out some weaknesses in a church and he'll say, but uh, you guys need to repent of that sin. But you actually have people who are faithful in your church who are doing what I'm telling you to do. They aren't compromising. They aren't succumbing to false teaching. They're not immoral. They walk with white. They are holy. They are God. They don't need to repent. You need to repent. So when, when Jesus gives these commands throughout these epistles, we need to focus on ourselves first and foremost. It starts with you. It starts with me, evaluating ourselves. If we're going to evaluate our church, we need to start by evaluating ourselves, those who make up the church, the cells of the body. That's where it starts. You can't really have a corporate command and a corporate call to repentance. Even when you're preaching to a mass of 5,000 people, giving the gospel in an auditorium or wherever it is, like a Billy Graham crusade or any crusade, when you're preaching to masses of people, and you give a call to repent, you're not calling the whole crowd, everybody there to repent, because there's Christians sitting there, they don't need to repent, get saved, if they're already saved. The call to repentance is an individual call. And when you break it down, that's the same that is true here in these letters to Revelation. Anytime Jesus gives an imperative or command, it's first and foremost, it starts with the individual. Very important. So uh, we need to focus on ourselves. So we need to implement and do what Revelation says. Some people, some Christians have the idea that, well, Revelation, I don't really study it. I don't read it. It's kind of theoretical. It's hard to understand. Actually, it's impossible to understand. It's just prophecy anyway, and everybody argues about it, and nobody has the right interpretation. So that's almost a quote from a lot of Christians. Uh, And I'm thinking, wow, that is so different for me. When I got saved early on, and I was around age 19, and I became a Christian, the first book I fell in love with was Revelation. 
and have been studying it and loving it ever since. So refreshing. Which reminds me of 2 Timothy 3.16. You know that scripture. All scripture is inspired by God. God breathed. All scripture, all of it, from Genesis to Revelation. It is all God breathed. It is all his living word. All scripture is God breathed and profitable. All scripture is profitable. Revelation is profitable. Romans is not more profitable to read and study than Revelation. The Gospel of John is not more profitable than Revelation. All Scripture is profitable, and God uses it for correction, for teaching, for training in righteousness, so that the man or woman of God may be adequate, thoroughly furnished, totally equipped. If you want to grow in your Christian maturity, you need the input or the IV of ongoing biblical truth from all books of the Bible, all Scripture, including Revelation. So I'd encourage you, keep studying Revelation. Keep searching through these first three chapters that we've studied. Keep looking for those imperatives from Jesus himself, the blessings that we should continue to do, the warnings that he said refrain from doing, and heed what he says. And if we do, as we walk in faith and in obedience, we will be blessed. That is his promise. Read and obey Revelation. We will be blessed. That's our goal as individuals, but also as a local church. Number two, after we need to heed what Jesus said in Revelation 1 through 3 is, Jesus is the judge of the local churches. That just comes out very clearly. A glaring truth. Who is the judge of the local churches? Jesus. Jesus is the judge of the local churches, and there's more. And only him. Jesus is the judge of the local churches and only him. That's true. It's obvious here. Jesus is talking with authority to these seven churches. In the first person, he's pronouncing blessings, he is pronouncing warnings, he's pronouncing threats. He is the judge. What's the takeaway there? Well, there are many takeaways. One is that we aren't the judge of the local churches. I don't have any business judging other local churches and assessing them from afar. This is a temptation of all pastors, I think. Our leaders in church, oh, our church is uh, better than their church. Unfortunately, I've been on church staffs over the years where I heard that recited and said and declared in meetings with leaders and pastors of those churches that I was a part of. No one can hold a church, a candle to our church in this town. That was a quote. It's like, wow. No, that's not true. We aren't in that position. We are not the judges of the churches. Jesus is. Him and him alone. So that's a good warning for us. We're not the spiritual fruit inspectors of every local church. There is place for us to be discerning. There is place for spokesmen to stand up and speak truth and to call out error. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about looking down our noses at another local church and judging it from afar superficially. We have no business doing that. Jesus is the Lord of the churches. They're his church. It would be like some other parent who has their own kids to worry about, and they're looking down their nose, judging the children of somebody else's parents or family, and they don't really know. They don't have all the facts. They don't know the special circumstances. They don't even have the authority by which to be making those assessments and judgments. So Jesus is the judge of the local churches. Let's leave it up to him. He's the head of the church. And John makes it clear, why is Jesus the judge and the sole judge and the appropriate judge? James chapter 5, verse 9 tells us not to judge other believers anyway. Don't do that. 
Don't do that unless you want to be judged more severely. But Jesus is the adequate, sufficient, and rightful judge because of his qualifications, primarily of who he is, who he is and what he knows. And I don't know if you've noticed, but in Revelation 2 and 3, as uh, Jesus addresses the seven churches, each one of the letters of the seven churches begins with an attribute of Jesus Christ. If you counted those up and listed them, there are 18 different attributes about Jesus listed by John. 18 different a- Could you even give me or list 18 different attributes about Jesus that are very specific? It's hard to do, but John lists them out for us. And those don't even exhaust all of his attributes. But John makes it plain. Jesus can talk like this because he is qualified. He has the authority. He holds these 18 different attributes. Just a couple, by way of example, he holds the seven stars in his hands. What does that mean? The stars are the messengers or kind of the leaders or spokespersons of the church. Jesus holds the leadership of the local church in his hand. He has all authority in the local church. He's the authoritative one. He is the sovereign one. So through these 18 attributes that are listed, you can kind of condense, there's a theme, a theme related to the attributes of Jesus as he talks to these churches. And the emphasis is on that he is deity, he is divine, he is God. That's definitely an emphasis from John. Jesus can judge the churches because he is divine, he is deity, he is God. Jesus can judge these churches because he is sinless and holy. That's another theme. Jesus can judge these churches because he's sovereign and has all authority over the churches, over every soul and the world for that matter. Jesus can judge these churches because he is all-knowing. I don't know if you noticed, in every one of the seven letters, Jesus begins talking about the specific church by first saying, I know, I know, I know. He says that seven times. When he was in his incarnation in the Gospels, Jesus didn't know everything at any given time in his incarnation. That was by design. That was by, really, his choice in an agreement with the Father. That during the incarnation, he would forego accessing his divine instantaneous omniscience. But once he died, rose again, was glorified, ascended into heaven, and now speaks to the churches in Revelation, Jesus knows everything. And he says, I know, I know, I know, I know. That's why he can speak authoritatively and judge. I know, I know your deeds. I know who you are. I know where you live. I know your strengths. I know your weaknesses. Jesus knows it all. Isn't that comforting? That is comforting to a Christian. Jesus knows it all. A sympathetic, comforting counselor needs to know where you're hurting. They need to know all of your trials. They need to sympathize with you. You can't be sympathetic unless you know Jesus knows it all. He can sympathize with us. It's also a fearful thing in addition to being comforting. Jesus knows everything because he knows all the the bad things about us, the compromise, the warts and all. And he makes that clear. I know, I know, I know. As a matter of fact, you can't make a just decision or assessment about anything unless you have all the facts, all the truth, right? Can't do it. People make judgments all the time. They make diagnoses all the time. And if they don't have all the information or they have wrong information or they have the wrong interpretation about the information that they have, they will not come up with a just verdict. Jesus knows it all. Hence, he is the perfect judge, always giving justice where it is due, the all-knowing one. And that's why he has the authority to judge. And also, Jesus is not transcendent so much so that he's not even in touch with us, can't relate to us like the deist God where he's off in the distance. 
Jesus is imminent. We see that in these churches. He walks among the lampstands. He walks among the churches. Jesus is present with his churches. Jesus is present here today. Literally, he is in this church. If you're a believer, Jesus is in you with the Holy Spirit. So Jesus is immediately available, immediately accessible, very personal with his people. Jesus is here. That is distinct about Christianity and the Bible from every other religion in the world. That our God, that our Savior is immediately available and present and literally in our midst. And if you know him by faith, he's literally in your heart in some miraculous way that we can't understand. By faith, through the Holy Spirit. That's why Jesus can judge churches. He knows. He's been there. He sees. He's in the midst. He sees it perfectly. So Jesus is the judge, and appropriately so. So we need to render and leave all judgment to Jesus when it comes to local churches, and we need his help in evaluating our own church. He makes some powerful statements that we've gone through with things like, if you don't repent, I'm going to remove your lampstand. If you don't repent from this specific sin, I'm going to wipe out your church. It's going to go into non-existence. And that actually happened to some of these seven churches. Some of these that we've read, Jesus comes across kind of harsh. Jesus used the word hate. For some Christians, that's a dirty word. You can never use the word hate. But here, Jesus said, I hate. Several times. I hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. I hate the sexual immorality of Jezebel. If you don't disassociate from her and deal with her, I will kill someone in your church. Wow. This is Jesus, Lord of the church talking. Well, that's kind of harsh. Well, he's talking to believers or those who profess to be believers. Why does, why does Jesus talk this way at times to the churches and to believers? Because he loves them. Really? Yes, he loves them. Tough love. Because he even says that in the passage. Those whom I love, I chasten, right? I chasten a discipline. Hebrews 12. A father who truly loves his children will discipline them. And at the time it seems harsh, but the byproduct and fruit, if done the right way, is righteousness and growth. And Jesus loves the church. He loves his people. And he disciplines accordingly. So Jesus is the judge of the local churches. And he alone, we need to be open to his evaluation, assessment, and judgment of our church and our individual lives. Number three, all churches are different and unique. Aren't these profound? I, I spent a lot of time thinking about this. All churches are different and unique. That's just clearly comes off the pages. And it's amazing because these seven churches were very close to one another, probably within 15 to 30 miles of each other in a semicircle there, kind of on the coast of Asia Minor. So you would think they all existed at the same time. They all had the same apostolic doctrine. They were all under the, the province of Roman rule. They all spoke or were influenced by the Greek language and Hellenization. Probably the majority of them were not Jewish, but Gentile. And they're probably in the same demographic because so many of those Christians in that day and age were slaves. So you would think they're kind of all the same. Cookie-cutter Christianity. Not, not so at all. You, you read these seven churches and Jesus' evaluation, and they are incredibly distinct from one another. Incredibly distinct. Have their own unique characteristics, their own personalities. Even though they're close to, together in proximity, there are different cultures that influence in them one way or the other. Here are just some basic differences. If you noticed as we were going through, there were four churches 
out of the seven, that had a strength, at least one strength and one weakness. Four. Jesus truly does love his people when he disciplines, because in those four churches where he said, I commend you for this, but I have this against you, but I have this against you. Anytime he rebuked a church or condemned a church or threatened a church, he always commended them first for what they do well. That is not by accident. That is not a coincidence. I think that's just Jesus being wise, Jesus being loving. God the Father would do the same. That's good parenting. You're dealing with your kid. That's good for coaching and teaching or someone in authority that you're working with on an ongoing, regular basis. Okay, I got to talk to them about their weakness here. This might hurt their feelings. This might ostracize them. They may never talk to me again. This may threaten our relationship. This may undermine our rapport. I may lose trust, lose trust here. Is there anything legitimately commendable that they are doing? Has there any been, any been real, any real progress up to this point while I've been working with it? And that's what Jesus does. He recognizes uh, legitimate strengths that they had, every single church, before he rebukes them. So four churches, he commends them first. I know your deeds. I know your works. I know where you live. And you have love, you started out well, you have faith, you have perseverance. Then he goes to the weakness, but, th- but I have this against you. So there's that beautiful, perfect balance. Affirming and holding accountable at the same time. Because Jesus has a heart of love for his people, even when they fail, even when they sin. This is the kind of grace we need to extend to one another because we're all sinful and walk with the feet of clay. We all sin. We all have shortcomings. So all of our rebuke, accountability, reprimands need to be salted with grace in the proper perspective, and that's what Jesus did. So these churches are different. So four of the churches have strengths and weaknesses. Two of the churches only have strengths. They were not rebuked. They had no weaknesses. That's unique. Who were those two churches? Well, it was Smyrna and Philadelphia. Well, why were they so special? How come they didn't get rebuked? Because they weren't doing anything wrong. That's why, and Jesus said so. But there is a common denominator that comes out of the text as to, well, why was Philadelphia commended in Smyrna, and yet they didn't have weakness? Because they were both suffering churches. They were under duress. They were being persecuted. They weren't compromising. And they had multiple venues or multiple kinds of persecution coming on down upon them from the secular Roman government, which demanded that you hail Caesar, worship Caesar, Jesus is, or uh, Caesar is kurios, Caesar is Lord, and Christians wouldn't do that. That was a political offense. You could end up in jail. You could end up executed in the Roman Empire at the time. So they're being persecuted from the secular ruling government, and at the same time, there are also pockets of religious people who are persecuting them. In the case in Asia Minor, a lot of these pockets were Orthodox Jews who hadn't come to Christ. They rejected Christ. They're actually Christ haters up to that point, like the Apostle Paul, who used to persecute Christians. And so there were these pockets of very hostile, unbelieving Jews that were persecuting Christians and wanting actually to chase them out of town, ostracize them, even kill them. And that actually happened, according to the words of John. So Smyrna and Philadelphia are in these positions and locations where they are under a unique kind of ongoing persecution. You know what? That's true today in the church around the world. Is CBC, Creekside Bible Church, being persecuted 
by the government, by individuals, by religionists who hate us? Well, depends. I think so. If you're being biblical, you're going to be persecuted anywhere in the world, to whatever degree. Jesus said in Matthew that some of that persecution will just simply be verbal. If somebody verbally assails you, says all manner of evil against you, Jesus said, that is persecution for my sake. And I will bless you and reward you in heaven. Endure that persecution, that onslaught, the verbal onslaught. So I, I, we have verbal onslaught and have had it, and I think for Christ's sake. But that should be kind of normative if you're an obedient Christian in an obedient church. You've been called not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake, said Paul in Philippians 1.29. You've been called to suffer for his sake. Suffering should not be an exception or something to be avoided as a godly, obedient Christian or church. You're in the world. The world hates you. When you joined the team, it was Jesus welcoming the team and said, oh, by the way, the world hates you. Oh, by the way, they're going to persecute you. They're going to assault you and assail you and say all manner of evil against you. Welcome to the team. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. I think I'll hide behind you. So that was true of Smyrna and Philadelphia. So you had four churches. They were different because they were commended and rebuked. Then you got these two very unique churches that were only commended for their strengths, probably because they were under duress. Whenever you have overt persecution of a group of Christians, it scares all the cockroaches away, like, like light does, right? Or all the fake, superficial professors just leave. Hey, I ain't going to hang out for this. I didn't sign up for this. Kind of like Judas. False believer. Nobody knew he was a false believer. Everybody thought he was a true blue follower of Jesus for three years. Finally gets exposed when it really got hard. When Jesus was subjected to, really, death. So persecution almost always exposes the superficial and hypocrites. And then, and then one last church was unique, and that was Laodicea, which we saw last week. They were the only church that uh, was only rebuked. They were not commended for anything. Why were they not commended? Does that mean there were no believers there? It doesn't say that. But the preponderance of the church and the nature and character of the church at that time in 90, whatever it was, A.D., was a compromised church, totally materialistic, as Derek said last week, and had totally succumbed to the world for the most part. They still had a profession, still had a sign on the door. First Baptist Church of Laodicea, been up there for a long time. Started out probably as a very good church, vibrant church, gospel church. So you have all these different churches, and Jesus has... Very appropriate and different words for each one. So number three, all churches are different and unique. That's why it's impossible to, for us to judge legitimately other local churches because they're not all the same. We don't know what's going on. How arrogant to make these categorical judgments. Number four, local churches change. And churches go through seasons Local churches change and go through seasons. We've already pointed this out. The church at Ephesus, we know the Apostle Paul planted the church at Ephesus. Probably 40 plus years before Revelation was written. The Apostle Paul goes in there, total pagan city, dominated by Gentiles, preaches the gospel, stays there for probably three years plus. 
gathers disciples, baptizes people, trains up leadership, raises up elders, establishes churches in the city of Ephesus. This is a vibrant church, a growing church, an exciting church, an uncompromising church, a bold church. Because of the pastors that they had over the years from Paul to Timothy to John, solid in their theology, that the best statement of faith in Asia Minor. Doctrinally pure, didn't tolerate false teaching, didn't tolerate false teachers. Church of Ephesus, that's how it started. They're commended by Paul in the epistle to the Ephesians. And then 40 years later, what happened? Changes took place. And we got to resist compromise as time goes by, as change goes by. And that's true of every one of these churches. We become vulnerable, and that's what happened with the church at Ephesus. They kept their pure doctrine. They continued to be Bible-thumping examiners of false doctrine and false teachers, and there's a place for that. But then Jesus said, you know what? You lost focus. You lost perspective. You lost sight of the main thing. As a Christian, you were all excited about Jesus. Now you're just only excited about doctrine, and you kind of forgot about me. I'm in the shadows. You've lost perspective. You need to... And he didn't just kind of minimize it and say, well, you know, you need to fix that. He said, repent, repent, or I will remove your church. you got to have the right priorities. The local church needs to be about Jesus, 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 and the gospel, and not lose focus, and nothing else. Everything else is uh, secondary to that and serves that purpose. That's what we do as a local church. Pastor Cliff, and we got seven other elders, what what do you do as a pastor? Well, really, it's kind of one job. I lift up, I'm supposed to lift up and exalt the name of Jesus Christ and His gospel and His truth and His word. Everything else is secondary to that and serves that purpose. I'm not a social worker. I'm not supposed to go out and create lemonade stands to help the poor. I'm not here to eradicate poverty. Jesus couldn't do that. The local church is about proclaiming the gospel. It's called the Great Commission. It is so easy to lose that focus. So easy. We're, we are vulnerable to that as a church, because every church is. So we've got to keep reminding ourselves, what are, the, what are the priorities? It is so easy. It's like every three to five years like clockwork in the evangelical world here, world here in America is some new trend that comes up, and people are calling, okay, churches need to be doing this now. Oh, okay, wow, we haven't been doing that. We've been around 13 years. Well, should we be doing that? Well, is it, wait. Oh, everybody else is doing that. Should we do that? We've only been like doing the, the gospel and the Bible thing. And that's a challenge. Keeps cropping up. So we need to be discerning. Stay on focus. Jesus lets us know that through the church of Ephesus. But churches do change. I went to a pastor's conference. It was actually a Baptist pastor's conference 20 years ago. And the main speaker, I'll never forget this. He got up there, and I think in his opening statement, he said this, quote, as a church, you are either growing or dying. And it was like, a, I just got punched in the gut. You are either, as a church, you're either growing or dying. And so I've been testing that thesis now for 20 years. I think he's right. Churches don't stay static. Why? Because churches are living organisms. They're living entities. And if you're alive... You only have two options. You're either growing or dying, right? In many different ways. 
But churches, the point is that churches do change. CBC, Creekside Bible Church, we are very different today than we were five years ago in a lot of different ways. Some good ways, probably some weaker ways. We're very different today than we were 12 years ago. CBC is different today than the First Baptist Church of Cupertino was 20 years ago, 40 years ago. Churches change. Churches go through seasons. But churches can be faithful. Churches can persevere. One generation can hand the baton properly to the next generation, right? By staying true to the course, to the plumb line of Jesus Christ and the gospel. And that's Jesus' challenge for us in these churches. So local churches change and go through seasons, and we need to be aware of that. Right now, we are in the midst of huge change at this church. Grace Bible Fellowship, Creekside Community Church, and now we are in the midst of a very significant change, a church merge. For many people, that never happens in a lifetime. This is the first time I've ever been a part of a church merge. There, was a, there were a lot of unknowns. Wow, how do you merge a church? There were some, wait, can I say fears? Whoa, what about this and what about that? And what happens here and how do you do that? Talk about change. So we've been subjected to change. We're in the midst of change. We need to follow Jesus' lead in the midst of change as we move forward. Stay focused on the priorities. Number five, after local churches change, we need to evaluate ourselves. So we need to evaluate. Earlier I said, Jesus is the, the judge of the local churches, and only he's the judge, big picture judge of local churches. Is there a place for us to judge? There is. We need to judge our local church. We need to evaluate ourselves. This is a theme all throughout Scripture. It's a theme all throughout the New Testament. These are commands. Listen to some of these familiar commands. Every time we do communion, here's Paul, 1 Corinthians 11, examine yourselves, examine, scrutinize yourself, scrutinize your soul, your thought life, what you do, what you say, who you associate with, how you exalt the name of Christ, how you compromise the name of Christ. Evaluate, examine yourself as you go to the Lord's table. That's a Christian discipline. Paul said the same thing in 1 Thessalonians 5. Examine everything carefully. Examine everything. Scrutinize everything. Hold fast to that which is good and have nothing to do with that which is evil. Examine everything. Present tense. Continue to examine everything as a Christian. Be a discerning Christian, an examining Christian, and a scrutinizing Christian. You're vetting all of this through the standard of God's Word with the help of His Spirit. This is a Christian discipline. 2 Corinthians 13.5, Paul ends with this. Two, and he, two phrases in a row that are parallel. First he says, test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. And then right after that he says, examine yourself. These, if you're a Christian, we're supposed to be doing that. That's a, a Christian discipline just like anything else. Just like prayer, giving, worshiping at church, studying the Bible, being involved with discipleship. Testing and examining should be a regular part of our life. Legitimate testing, objective testing, with God's help, Scripture, Otherwise, counselors, not a morbid introspection. It's not what I'm talking about. It's a biblical evaluation. And it starts with ourselves. Examine yourself. Every man should examine himself, Paul said. And you know, that's, that's difficult to do, isn't it? You ever, when we typically, when I examine myself, I'm actually pretty good. I give myself a thumbs up usually. You know what I think of myself? Five stars, baby. A plus, uh-huh. I am totally biased. Why? Because I love myself. 
How do I know that? Because God said so in Ephesians 5. You love yourself. No, I don't. Yeah, you do. Ephesians 5. No man hates himself. That's what it says. So how, wait, on the one hand, we're supposed to examine ourselves, judge ourselves, test ourselves, scrutinize ourselves, and yet we are totally biased towards ourselves. We love ourselves. We're finite. We're fallen. How can we possibly be objective in evaluating ourselves? Good question. It's a challenge. It is not easy. We need objective standards in place. Well, one objective standard is the Bible. You put yourself through the grid of the Bible. How do you compare in light of the Bible? That's one objective standard. Another objective standard, Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians 2, 4, he said, God examines our hearts. The Spirit examines my thoughts. God examines my heart. No man can judge my heart. I can't even, I'm not even objective most of the time in examining my heart and my motives. So I can't do it on my own. I need help. God will help. God's Spirit helps. God's Word helps. There's wisdom in a multitude of counselors, says the Bible. So having objective, godly counselors who know you and have the facts and the information and know you well and are close to you, see the pattern of your life, the habits of your life, the language of your life, and they know the Word of God, they can give input by which to help evaluate you. You need to be open to that. I need to be open to that. We need to be teachable. Give me feedback. I know it hurts. It's painful. Oh, do it again. Ouch. But that's how God grows us. That's how we fulfill this mandate to test ourselves and examine ourselves. So we need to evaluate ourselves. And I mentioned this earlier. Well, how do you, when Jesus says, repent or examine yourself, who is he calling to repent? Before the corporate church, it's the individuals in the church. That's who he's calling to repent. And the only way you can repent is after objectively evaluating yourself, recognizing that, oh, I am doing this, I am sinning here, I am compromising here, this violates God's word, this violates what Jesus said, I need to stop doing that, that is sinful, evil, and wicked, it displeases my Lord and my Savior, and I need to repent. That means turn away from it, a radical turning from that sin. It's a volitional act, an act of the will. I am accountable, I am responsible, I do it. Repent, it starts with the individual. So we need to evaluate ourselves. Psalm 139, 23 and 24. Beautiful psalm about the Holy Spirit who searches all things, who knows our thoughts, our most inner being, the inner recesses of our soul. And at the end of the prayer, he says, Lord, you need to help me. You need to search me. You need to search out thoughts that are evil that I don't even know. You need to expose sin that I'm not even aware of. They even had that kind of reality in the, in the Mosaic Law. There were sacrifices for sins you didn't even know you were committing. Because we are finite, fallen, short-sighted, and prone to rule in favor of ourselves. Also, when I think about evaluating ourselves from the individual, but also at a church level, Focusing on our church. I think it's appropriate that the elders evaluate our church because they're shepherds of this church. This church has been entrusted to our care, says First Peter 5. We are accountable to God for it, says Hebrews 13. So we need to be able to properly evaluate CBC, Creekside Bible Church. How do we do that? And that is legitimate because Jeremiah 23, read it sometime. 
Jeremiah 23, Jerusalem has just been sacked. The north has already been conquered. God sent Babylon to take Judah, southern kingdom, away to Babylon. Jeremiah is in the middle of all this. Why is God judging his own people? Why did God judge northern Israel and then southern Israel? Why is he judging them? Why did he have the Assyrians come and slaughter them? Why did he have Nebuchadnezzar, a pagan, come and take them away from the promised land? Why did God do that? God tells us in Jeremiah 23. Because his people, the Israelites, who had the Mosaic law, who were supposed to be obeying him, who have seen in their history the deliverance of his people from the Egyptians and the crossing of the Red Sea, they became compromised. They became immoral. And they were subject to false teaching, sexual immorality, all that stuff. And the onus of all of that in Jeremiah 23 from God is on the shepherds or the leaders of the church in Israel. So, you know, your people, there's immorality everywhere. There's compromise everywhere. You have turned your back on me, your Savior, and your God. And you know why you're that way? Because of your compromised priests and shepherds. That's why. So if a local church is going to evaluate itself, scrutinize itself, test itself, it does need to start with the leadership. They need to be willing to examine themselves objectively with all of those objective standards that I mentioned earlier that need to be in place. That's where it needs to start. It doesn't stop there, but it's got to start there. Leadership, leadership, leadership. That's true in the Bible. Isaiah said that. So we've got to have humble, godly, biblical leadership that is arduously pursuing an objective evaluation, pleading with God for honest assessment. How are we doing, Lord? Where are we? That's what I've been doing, trying to do as I've been listening to these sermons for the last seven weeks from our pastors and elders on Revelation. Jesus talking to the churches, Kate, keep doing this, don't do that. That is terrible. I'm going to come and I'm going to take you out. That is a compromise. And all the while I'm thinking, okay, boy, are we like this? The CBC... Are we like this? Do we do this? I don't know. That's kind of scary. I know we're not supposed to be doing this, but are we doing this? I don't know. That's frightening. But that's what we need to be pursuing. So we need to evaluate ourselves. We've got to be careful when we evaluate. Think of this. And you perfectionists out there, don't raise your hand. Some of you are self-identifying perfectionists. And proud of it sometimes. You might like the church at Ephesus. I don't know if you noticed this, but did you know that Jesus commended the church of Ephesus for nine things? Nine in a row. Man, you do this, you do this, you do this, you do that, you do this. This is great, wonderful, keep doing that. Nine, nine things. So, wow. You know, that was more than any other church. They got commended for more stuff than any other church. And they said, but I have this one thing against you. Just one. So nine to one. Usually when it's nine to one, the, the team with nine wins, right? Yay, we got nine. No, not yay. Because the one that Jesus had against you was a killer. If you don't change this one thing, I'm going to wipe you out. I'm going to snuff you out. You will go into non-existence. Your nine goodies don't make up for your one compromise. That's sobering. So we can't look at things legalistically or as a perfectionist. Oh, we got seven. We're good. We got seven good, two bad. We're good. No. Doesn't work that way. So we got to be careful. We got to evaluate, but we got to be careful and use God's judgment, His standard of judgment. Number six. This is kind of the takeaway. Though this is the takeaway. There's a lot of stuff here. Okay, in light of everything that I've said, that we need to 
evaluate ourselves as individuals, because Jesus said so, the main calls or imperatives that Jesus proclaims through these seven churches calling for change, the two words he uses are repent and remember. Repent and remember. Repent and remember. And again, it starts as individuals. We need to repent. Are we doing this sinful thing? Okay, then we need to repent. We need to stop doing it. Are we not doing it? Are we neglecting this? Then we need to start doing that and repent of our negligence. And we need to remember, well, we used to do this. God honored it. God blessed it. God empowered us to do it. We don't do it anymore. We've become comfortable. So repent and remember are really the two most repeated imperatives from Jesus of how to bring about change. 1 Peter 4 says, verse 17, that judgment from God begins with the household of God. So we got to get our eyes off of the world. That's futile. Christians do it all the time. I'm guilty at times. You look at the world and how sinful and messed up it is, and you say, oh, this world is so sinful and messed up. <laughs> yeah, newsflash. It's been that way since the fall. That's nothing new. Is that a surprise? Shouldn't be. This world is so messed up. They're so immoral. They're so compromised. They lie all the time. Yeah. And you used to be that way when you weren't a Christian. That's the world. Paul said in Corinthians, don't, don't be wasting your time judging the world. God's, God's already judged the world. He made, he made it clear what he expects. They're under judgment, and he offers salvation. If we're going to judge anybody, it's evaluate ourselves, starting with our own hearts and our own local church with Jesus' help by his standards, using his words, so that he's actually the one judging through the Holy Spirit and his living word. So here's the takeaway, number six is real simple. Just to be an obedient individual as a Christian and a follower of Jesus, just hate what Jesus hates. Affirm it, know it, own it, and love what Jesus loves. Embrace what Jesus commends in these churches. And I'll give you a list just by way of reminder. Here they are. Let's start with hate what Jesus hates. And as a church and as an individual Christian, let's try to do the same. Holding each other accountable, asking God and being dependent upon him. What should we hate? Well, these are the things Jesus hated in uh, the seven churches. Repeatedly, he hates false teachers. That is not a change from the Gospels, by the way. If you read through the four Gospels, Jesus had some very strong language that offends people and hurt people's feelings. People would say it's not loving. And 100% of the time, it is reserved for false teachers, usually the religious Pharisees. Matthew 23. That didn't change. Jesus still has that same attitude towards false religion and false teaching, that what it does is it leads people astray, and it leads them inevitably to hell, to eternal damnation. That's why he hates it so much, a distortion of his blessed, gracious truth. So we need to hate false teaching. We need to despise false teachers in terms of their teaching. The emphasis is on their false teaching, their deception. Uh, Another common theme that Jesus hates throughout in these seven churches, is sexual compromise, sexual immorality. He condemns it in the most strident terminology imaginable, especially with Jezebel. If you don't repent of your immorality, I'm going to throw you down on your back, and I'm going to take you, I'm going to kill you. Sexual immorality. 
that starts with promoting biblical sexual morality. As simple as, what is marriage? It's a man and a woman. We're not going to compromise on that. That is in the Bible. God invented marriage. He designed marriage. He protects marriage. Marriage between one man and one woman is a picture of Christ and his church that's celebrated for all eternity in the future. We are not going to compromise on something so fundamental and biblical and precious to God. That would just be one example that we can't compromise on. And I could go on and on. Uh, What else did Jesus hate? He hates idolatry of all forms. Idolatry. Do we have idolatry here in America? Yeah. Do we have it here in Northern California? Yeah. Different kinds. It manifests itself in different ways. We have kind of a unique potential for idolatry here in Northern California because we have influence of Buddhism and Hinduism, actually, in our area and in our culture. I see it everywhere. I see little fat Buddhas on people's lawns as I walk down the neighborhood. That's an idol. Or Hinduism, the worship of multitudinous gods, and people try to take that over and bring that into Christianity. Jesus hates that. He condemns that. That is to be rejected out of hand if you're a Christian. Have nothing to do with idolatry. If you have a Catholic background like I do, have nothing to do with praying to dead people, praying to Mary, giving dead people allegiance, giving allegiance to any human being, a pope or who, it doesn't matter who it is, that is idolatry. Revering the local pastor, that is idolatry. Revering your favorite preacher, that is idolatry. What else does Jesus hate? He hates compromise in the face of persecution. Easy for us to do. we got to cave because here in California, they're so liberal. We need to cave to every demand they make that impinges upon our Christian beliefs. No, we endure. We persevere. We accept the consequences. We trust Jesus. He will honor us. That pleases him. What else does Jesus hate? He hates external religion. External religion. Just going through the motions on the outside. The exterior, the buildings, the programs, they're not inherently evil, but if that's all you got, if that's what you're putting your stock in and your loyalty to and your love in, and depending upon that, it becomes Pharisaism. And Jesus hates external religion apart from a heart that loves him. It's the heart first that matters. What else does Jesus hate? Well, he told the lady to see, he hates materialism. Is, is it evil to have money? No. Is materialism evil? Yes. It's where you depend upon your money. You become self-sufficient, prideful. You're not dependent upon God anymore. You're not dependent upon faith or prayer. Oh, we got it all. We have no need. We have no need. We got it all. Got money in the bank account? Good. God hates that. He hates self-sufficiency. It leads to pride. It leads to boasting. And then I'll leave you with these. Here are the things that Jesus loves. Let's continue to do these. Hard work. He commends hard work repeatedly. Hard work. And he's talking about ministry. Hard work in the church. Hard work for Jesus. I pull up in the driveway and there's just about every Sunday and somebody's carrying that, lugging out that big old sign. It's part of the work. It's part of the ministry. It's an important part of the ministry. Nobody sees it. It's behind the scenes. The goal is to serve Jesus. Somebody actually, several people have actually come to our church by just seeing that sign. I know that for a fact, driving by, wow, what's, whoa, what's that? Thank you for doing that. Hard work. What else does Jesus uh, love or commend? Love, 
love among the brethren. So not being judgmental of other Christians in your local church, not being a gossip about other members in your church or your pastors or leaders in the church, not being divisive in your local church. Those are all unloving. Loving the brethren. They're your brothers and sisters in Christ. What else does Jesus love? Faith. Trusting him, trusting him, trusting him. Walking by faith, day by day. We're called to walk by faith. That pleases Jesus. Toil, that means hard work. That's similar to doing uh, work, but this is giving it your all. You're committed to it. It's the most important thing in your life is uh, serving Jesus in your local church and in the community. He is your first and your foremost. He is your heart's desire. He's what gives you joy and fulfillment, serving him, knowing him. That's the call of a Christian. This pleases Jesus. Enduring suffering. This pleases Jesus. He commends the churches that do that. Thank you for being willing to endure suffering. Physical persecution, slander, a lack of uh, resources, poverty, but remaining faithful to my cause, my name, my church, my gospel. You will be blessed if you do. Rewards in heaven. Not tolerating sinful behavior. Jesus loves that. Implement Matthew 18. Don't let people get away, especially your members, with sinfulness and compromise and device uh, cause division in the church. The church discipline process. Jesus established it. He knows what's best for the church. It purifies the church. It protects believers. It makes a statement to the world. This pleases Jesus, not tolerating sinful behavior. Exposing false teaching. We need to continue to do that where appropriate. Simply by teaching the truth of the Bible, it does its own work because it's the living Word of God. Holding fast His name. So not losing focus of our priority. It's all about Jesus Christ. He is Lord. He's King. It's His church. It's not my church. I'm a servant of the church. I'm saved by grace. I have nothing to offer. The only thing I have to offer is my sin that he's forgiven. It's all for Christ. Maintaining the right priorities. So simple, but it's so difficult to do because we forget so easily. Well, I'm going to stop there. That's a lot to think about, meditate upon. Let's encourage one another, motivate one another to love and good deeds as Hebrews calls us to do. Let's thank God for this local church that he has established, that he rules over, that he provides for, that he leads, that we lean on his wisdom moving forward every step of the way, that we continue to bow the knee to him, remaining teachable and humble, remembering that he is the priority in all things. He deserves all the glory, we none. Amen? Let's go to the King Jesus, our Lord, in prayer. Father, we thank you for our time together. Thank you for the work that you're doing. We do thank you for the merge, Lord, bringing Christians together, bringing churches together to make them more healthy and hopefully obedient, hopefully to make a, a greater impact for you in the community. We trust that's what you're doing. Thank you for your goodness and grace, your ongoing provision, your living word, the scriptures that feeds our soul, that reminds us of these important truths. God, help us to do these things that please you, Jesus. And God, help us to refrain from things that you hate, that disappoint you, that really are sins against you. God, we need your help desperately. And for the believer, you promised to give it. And we thank you for that precious truth. We pray that you would be glorified in these things. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about Creekside Bible Church, please visit our website at creeksidebiblechurch.com.